0: If you are interested in trying to improve the outcomes for youth who age out of foster care, then this podcast is for you. Hi, I'm Lynn Tonini, founder of Aging Out Institute, an organization dedicated to sharing resources and strategies that help youth who have to age out of the system be able to transition to independence successfully. Now grab something to take notes and get ready for some great information. Hello and welcome to the 10th episode in our podcast series, Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. Today's guest is Kate Danielson, the Executive Director with an organization called Foster Progress based in Chicago, Illinois. Well, welcome, Kate. I am so glad to have you with us on our podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Lynn. Oh, you're very welcome. I understand you're recording from your car today.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I had to escape. I have four kids, a husband and a dog that are all home in the quarantine. So this is my sound booth. I hope
0: you don't mind me asking about that because of the time we're in. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) It just seems to reflect, you know, some of the challenges that we all are facing. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. well, why don't we go ahead and get started? How is it that you are connected with the foster care system?
1: Sure. So my first exposure to the foster care system was my aunt when I was growing up was a foster parent. So I had some um, cousins, you know, quote unquote, who were in and out of her home over the years. And that was my first introduction. And then when I was a young adult, newly married. I got connected to a family through my church who were just really community minded and they had adopted three children through foster care who were at the time teenagers. And one of those young people was Ashley and she now has become a great friend of mine. She went to, you know, she graduated high school, graduated college, went to on to get her master's in social work And when Ashley was done with her schooling, she and I reconnected, and she was the one who told me that only 3% of foster youth end up getting a college degree. And so she and I really set out to to make some changes in the system here in Illinois in partnership with each other. So Ashley was a driving force, and she was our first chair of the board of directors. And um, her family also inspired my husband and I to become foster parents ourselves. So we have two biological children, um, two boys who, when they were six and four, we became foster parents to Michael, who was two. And then about four years later, we were finally able to adopt him. And then more recently, we, as of June, we became guardians to Hannah, who is an 11-year-old and my first girl.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. So you have something that our other podcast interviewees haven't had, at least to date, which is that experience of being a foster parent. That's fabulous. So you started Foster Progress. And when did you start that? And if you could give us a little bit of information, sort of high level, what it is that you do? So the founding of Foster
1: Progress, you know, was kind of a a slow ramp up, I would say started officially around 2015. And we're now in our fourth year of actual programming and being a 501c3 and everything. The work that we do is largely focused on higher education. So, you know, we use the word college, but that includes technical training and community college, as well as four-year degrees and, and master's degrees and anything after high school. So we're just encouraging more youth to pursue higher education, and we do it through four main programs. Our highest touch program is a mentoring program, one-on-one mentors that start in typically like the junior year of high school and go through the freshman year of college. And that program is also wrapped up in um, some scholarship money. So each time that the students meet with their mentors, they earn $100 in scholarship money, which then they can use on really anything that's going to support their educational goals once they're enrolled in a program after high school. Another program that we do is college road trips. We take students on trips when there's not a quarantine around the state of Illinois to kind of compare and contrast their options after high school. And we also do some advocacy work, just making sure that there are as many supports and as few barriers as possible in like state legislation and also in the policies of places like our institutions of higher education and in the foster care system. And then lastly, we try to provide some trainings for any helping adults. So whether it's the caseworkers, the foster parents, educators in high schools and in at the college level, just try to bring them the best practices for how can we remove barriers to student success.
0: Wow, that's a great overview. I want to go back to the mentoring program. You mentioned that when the young people meet with their mentors, they earn some money as part of that scholarship. How has that worked as an incentive? It's the first time I've heard that particular strategy and I love it.
1: (laughs) How has that worked for you? Yeah, I think it's been really helpful. I worked at a program early in my career that did something similar. I don't think they gave quite as much scholarship money, But while I was working there, they took away that incentive, like they didn't provide the scholarship money anymore. And we just saw such a dramatic decrease in the number of students that were participating. So I was like, okay, I think this is really valuable. And you know, one of the number one, I mean, the number one reason that students from foster care end up dropping out of college is because of financial issues. There is a lot of financial aid that's available to foster youth, but the, the usage of it is really tied to tuition and sometimes room and board. But so often the students' needs are for things outside of what financial aid would typically pay for. And so I think having money that's not so specific is uh, really helpful to our students. So, you know, and sometimes too, like in terms of incentivizing the program, sometimes our students... They know that they're gonna need money, but they don't necessarily know that they need the mentoring until it's too late. And so it encourages them to apply early on and get that support even before they realize how much they're gonna need it.
0: Sure, so this is cash that they're earning and they can use it toward the needs that they have or is it something that they identify, okay, no, I'd like this to go toward tuition and then you write a check to the school.
1: Yeah. So it, it could work both ways. So um, the only requirement is that they have to be enrolled in a post-secondary program in order to use their uh, scholarship money that they've earned through us. And then they also have to just discuss with their mentor how they're going to use it so that you know, the mentor kind of does a soft approval saying, yeah, I think that's a good idea. So we've had students use it for things like a study abroad program, buying dorm room essentials just for their rent or buying groceries even. But then, you know, in some cases they'll apply it toward tuition or room and board. And If it's something where we can send a check to the school or to a a vendor, we would prefer to do that. But there have certainly been cases where we've just given students cash for them to use as well.
0: And what do the youth need to do to be able to be accepted into your program and then to be able to get that scholarship money?
1: Yeah, our application process to this point has been pretty open. Really, all that we're looking for is that desire. If a student wants to pursue higher education and they want a mentor to help them to do that, that's all we're looking for. We don't ask that they have any certain GPA or test scores or even letters of recommendation just because we know that those are barriers to students succeeding in other types of scholarship programs and things like that, and even in access to college itself. Because they're going through so much during, you know, their their lives are oftentimes in turmoil throughout their school years. That may mean that their GPA takes a hit or that their test scores aren't as great. And so I don't think those are very good measures of their capacity for learning or for succeeding. So we're just asking that they want to be mentored. And we do sometimes have like, a caseworker or a foster parent will fill out the application for the student, and then when we get in touch with the student, they're like, "I guess I want to mentor," and <laughs> you know, that's not not an ideal fit for the program because if you're not, you know, really interested in meeting with someone once a week, then it's not going to actually be helpful to
0: you. Mm-hmm, right. How do you pair the youth with the mentors? Is it a random approach, or do you have some sort of process to match them?
1: Yeah, we have a process. So um, there's applications on both sides for the mentors and for the youth, and then really our the primary function for matching is geography because we want it to be easy for them to get together. So they have to live, you know, somewhat close to each other. And mm-hmm. then after that, it's things like we usually uh, do same sex matches and matches with folks who have like similar interests. Um, similar career paths, um, you know, personality, things like that. So we really look at what we think is going to make a successful match.
0: Wonderful. And how many youth do you work with and and how many mentors you have?
1: Yeah. In the mentoring program, we have about 30, 30 students, 30 mentors. And then uh, we'll also have, you know, our reach will go beyond those 30 when we do things like trainings and the college road trips.
0: Do you approach the schools that the young people are going to, to see if you can find mentors from among the faculty? Because I know that there are a lot of university programs that support foster youth and they tap into their faculty to Mm -hmm. find mentors. So I just wonder, have you have you done that? Mm -hmm. We have. Um, Usually
1: our students are starting the mentoring program while they're still in high school. Mm -hmm. But once in a while, we'll have a student apply who is already in college and, you know, they feel they need the support just to persist throughout their college years. Or maybe in some cases they're in community college and they want to transfer to a four-year institution and they want help through that transition. So yeah, we actually have had in a few different cases Someone who's connected to the college where the students are attending ends up applying to mentor.
0: I think that seems to be such a logical approach to finding somebody because they would have the familiarity with the institution and may even be in the track that the young person wants to pursue as far as education goes.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, when we do the college trips, that's been a really cool way to get connected with Oftentimes on college campuses, there's like either an official or unofficial kind of network of youth from foster care and the adults who just care about them. So, for example, here in Illinois at Northern Illinois University, NIU, they have this sort of mother hen figure who works in the financial aid department. And she's just one of those people who cares, you know? And like, as soon as you get involved in the foster care community in Illinois, you start to hear her name, you know? And so I had the pleasure of taking a student. I'm like, okay, I need to meet this woman. So I took a student to meet her on a college road trip. And and she's just, you know, the sweetest lady. She knows everyone because she works in financial aid, she can provide a lot of support and encouragement for students that, I mean, everybody kind of has to cross financial aid's path at some point in their four years. So she's in the prime spot to be
0: helpful to students. She sounds great. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, these college road trips... I really like that you do that because that always seemed to me to be something that would be lacking because I don't know if the foster parents always would have the ability or the desire to take the youth out on college visits. And I don't know if how many youth have their own transportation to be able to do that. So I really like that you take the time to have that experience for the foster youth that their peers who aren't in foster care so often have
1: yeah and it's so fun like it's such a great way to connect us the program staff with the students and just to really get to know them and then also to connect them to each other you know there's like nothing better for bonding than a road trip you know just spending some time in a car together this is the one program where we accept students who are younger as well so they can come on these trips if anyone who's experienced foster care who's ages uh 14 and up can come And we had a couple years ago, a young man who was 14 and he was the youngest person that has participated in these. And he came on every college road trip that summer. We went to five different colleges around Illinois and he and his brother both really wanted to play football for a college when the time comes. So we made sure to visit all the football stadiums. And it just so happened that the schools that we were visiting were Earlier in the summer, they were smaller and they got bigger and bigger as summer went on. And so the last stadium that we went to was for University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And so it's this huge stadium. And it was so fun because we kind of snuck in. There was a little bit of a practice going on. There were a couple of coaches And so they wandered over and asked who we were. And I explained that we were a a college access program for foster youth. And these coaches met the young men who were so interested in playing football when they are in college and just kind of gave them a little pep talk. And it was so fun and so encouraging for the boys. And then I got an email after the fact from their caseworker saying, that she was so pleased that this young man had been able to come on the college road trips this summer because now he was starting high school with that goal of getting into U of I by the time he graduates high school. And so that inspiring trip made a really big difference in his life. And you know, that's that's the goal of those trips. Not only information gathering, but also just, hey, this is for you. Like picture yourself here and this could be your future too.
0: Yeah, it, it actually made me wonder how often your youth have that paradigm shift of, yes, I can do this. And so for for that reason, that experience seems really valuable.
1: Right. Yeah. I think that's a big part of our work at Foster Progress. You know, like I said, there is a lot of financial aid that's available for foster youth. And there are some people in the Department of Children and Family Services that are implementing just getting the financial aid out to those kids and getting them in programs to support them but sort of the the puzzle piece like where foster progress fits in is by getting the word out at an earlier age training foster parents and caseworkers and the youth themselves to think of this as an option for them because i think there's so few people that are saying that message to them that you have a bright future ahead of you education is how you can get there, you are capable of it and all of that.
0: Absolutely. Now I'm wondering what the philosophy is at Foster Progress regarding encouraging attendance at a college and university versus community college versus the trades because there are pros and cons to each. And for so long, the schools have been pushing college, 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 and now we have a a deficit of people um, in the trades. And so there's a real need there to have young people go into the trades. And also it's less debt to go to a community college or a trade school. So I'm just wondering, how do you communicate with the young people you work with as far as which direction they should go? And is it really driven by the youth? You encourage them in certain directions. What, what do you do with that? That is such a good question, Lynn. <laughs> it's such a
1: good. It's a really hard one, and it's one that um, it's one that I struggle with. And I'll tell you why. It's something that I've thought about. So for me personally, a four-year degree, I think, is a goal that really more foster youth should consider. And I think so often. There's biases against foster youth and against low-income youth and against people of color and urban youth. So these are the populations that I've worked with throughout my whole career. I started my career as a high school English teacher in one of the most underserved communities here in Chicago. And I think so often we're tracking those populations into the technical careers And so I do want to push students who are capable and who are interested and who have that desire and that motivation to really pursue the highest possible level of education that they can, because I think too often we're steering them toward a lower bar. So that's my personal philosophy. I also just see, statistically speaking, that Four-year degrees, especially because they're so expensive, are getting a bad rap in the media. And this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. So, like, for example, you'll see a lot of stories about so-and-so who has bachelor's degree in English, which is what I have my bachelor's degree in, by the way, or philosophy or art or something like that. And and maybe they also have a master's degree and they're working like three low-paying jobs and they're buried in student debt, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like you see a lot of those kinds of stories these days. But if you just look at the statistics for employment, and just income level really higher education a four-year degree a bachelor's degree is still by far the best way to climb that social ladder to have less unemployment to be less likely to be unemployed and to have a sustainable salary and a sustainable career over the course of your lifetime so even though the press is kind of looking at those individual stories of people who are unemployed just statistically speaking People with bachelor's degrees still make much more money over the course of their lifetime and are much less likely to be unemployed than those who have other kinds of degrees. So, all that being said, if a student wants to go to a technical school, you know, if that's really their dream, you know, we do support that. Part of our mentor training is like we support whatever the student's goal is. And so, whether it's a goal that we think is too high or too low for them like they will figure it out. You know, I I didn't start out as an education and English major when I started my college degree and I figured it out as time went on and we see the students figuring those things out as well. And so we kind of walk with them through that self-exploratory phase and seeing what all the different kinds of options are and just guiding them and and helping them meet whatever their own dreams are.
0: Sure. You mentioned that you do training on how to remove the barriers. What would you say are, say, maybe the top two or three barriers that you've learned are preventing foster youth from attaining the education that they really need?
1: Yeah, I think the number one reason, like I mentioned earlier, that students drop out or maybe don't enroll in the first place is financial. You know, they feel especially our students are seeing that aging out sort of deadline looming in their near future and they feel like okay i need to start working now i need to start saving money now so that when i age out when i emancipate from this system i have some stability you know i can afford a place to live i can feed myself etc cetera, etc cetera, because there is no safety net apart from our social systems there's no family, there's no mom where I can go live in her basement for a few years while I finish my degree, that kind of thing. And so money is the number one barrier. And then I would say secondarily is probably, which is related, is housing insecurity. I worked with this one young lady who, it was so difficult to make plans with her because she wanted to go to community college, um, so there's no dorms for her to live in. But she didn't want to stay living with a foster parent. She didn't really have like a stable foster care placement where she could stay over the course of a couple of years while she finished community college. And so we never knew, you know, where she was going to be next. And so you have to live in the community college's district in order to attend that community college. So we weren't sure which district she was going to live in, you know? And so I have a young lady, Allison, who's on our board of directors who aged out of foster care herself. And she's just been such a great advocate and a wise person to, you know, help us understand what our students are going through. And she once said, it's so hard to plan for your future when you're so worried about your right now.
0: Oh, wow. I really like how she's put that. I don't like that she had to say it, but the way she put it was great. Yeah. So,
1: and we see that all the time. Like, you know, we want to help these students turn their their dreams into plans, and take these actionable steps, but it's very difficult to do when there's so much insecurity.
0: Sure. Now, do you have a residential component to your services there? You've got youth all over. So how far do you reach and how do you help them get the housing that they need? I'm thinking particularly on breaks and over the summer.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. So It's part of the issue of housing instability is that here in Illinois, we have a program where students who live in dorms and are in college can be part of something called Youth in College through the Department of Children and Family Services. And um, it's considered a placement, but then there's no mechanism for, okay, where are you going to stay over those breaks? Like you mentioned, like over the summer break, over the holidays and things like that. And so, you know, there are um, some efforts at mitigating that issue, but nothing that's really system-wide that is really actually helpful to everyone at this point. What we do at Foster Progress, we don't have a residential component because like you mentioned, our students are spread out all over Cook County, which is, you know, Chicago and the surrounding suburbs. But what we do is just try to help each individual student and make sure that they have plans so that they're never like caught off guard by, oh, summer's rolling around and I haven't decided where I'm going to be staying And we have definitely had situations where our mentors step up and offer our students a place to stay. One mentor actually became a foster parent so that she could foster the young lady that she was mentoring when her placement fell apart. And now during um, this COVID situation, it's getting to the point where Many of our colleges are allowing our students to stay on campus, but it's getting toward the end of the school year. And so they are going to be closing up the dorms. And so we have another situation right now where a mentor has offered a place for a young man to stay because he has no real home to return to.
0: Yeah. I've actually talked to a few, interestingly, retired individuals who told me, you know, if I knew of a young person at a college near me. Yeah. They would be more than welcome to come and stay with me over breaks and over the summer, which gave me the idea of someday. I don't know when it could happen, but to create like an Airbnb for young people in foster care who are looking for a temporary place to stay.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And it might be, you know, starting with those college students. Or looking for place over the breaks and over the summer. And I thought, you know, hey, you could get these individuals or couples who say, I live near college, we've got an extra room, our kids are out of the house, come stay with us. And then you find each other online.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. So we we talked about doing a host family kind of program through foster progress and you know, we looked into sort of a like a light version of foster parenting where you would get some training, you know, maybe we'd come do like a home inspection, make sure your your home is safe and everything, some background checks just to get people certified, but they wouldn't be official foster parents. So that we could set up, you know, like a home for the holidays program and Another idea, one thing that we do also suggest when I do trainings on um, college campuses is taking, like a lot of times colleges will have a program for their international students or exchange students where, you know, they might go and stay with a faculty member over the holidays, for example, because they can't go all the way home. And so if they just expand that program to be available to foster youth as well, that can be really helpful. The unfortunate thing, though, is that I really see, and this is just anecdotal, but I really see our students are not necessarily willing to stay in those kinds of arrangements very often because they're just weary of living in someone else's space by the time they get to this age of being young adults, they are ready for independence. And they're tired of adjusting to somebody else's expectations and somebody else's rules and that kind of thing. So, you know, my husband and I, we've hosted students for um, Christmas who have like no family to celebrate Christmas with. And that was really fun, but they already have a connection with us. They already know us. And even so, you know, you can just tell like, These are our traditions are not their traditions and they're still a guest. So I think that really like the best solution to the housing insecurity would be to offer students their dorms staying open over those breaks so they don't have to move in and out. Or just more money for rent so that they can be in apartments and living with roommates and, you know, their peers so that they can have that independence and don't have to adjust to yet another foster parent-like figure. Yeah, that's a good point.
0: I'll have to think about that some more. (laughs)
1: I know. I, There's so many people who care about this population and it seems like such an easy fix, you know, like I would host these kids, you know, you can come stay at my house for a couple weeks. I have a guest room. And I know there are certainly students who would enjoy that and who would take you up on that opportunity, but you know, not all.
0: Yeah, sure. What I'd like to do now is to ask about the current situation that we're in. You're interviewing from your car. That's one reflection. <laughs> but I would imagine that your work with the foster youth that you mentor and show around the colleges and so forth has been impacted because a lot of the mentoring and this college road trip, it's all in person. So, how has it impacted your program and how are you managing through it yourself? And how are you helping your youth manage through it? The thing
1: that is really a little bit scary about this quarantine for foster youth is that the folks who are mandated reporters, like their teachers and their doctors and the adults that they interact with every day don't have eyes on them as much. And so The number of abuse and neglect hotline calls has gone way down, but we know that that does not mean our children are being abused and neglected less. And so that's really worrisome. But a program like Foster Progress, where a student is paired with a one-on-one mentor, they have that mentor who can Check in on them at least remotely through a phone call, you know, a Skype conversation, texting, etc. So, our mentors are definitely still checking in with the students and working on their plans remotely by using technology. It has definitely impacted our students, and we have some of the older young adults who were working and um, providing for their own needs, they lost their jobs or their hours were lessened greatly. And so we've been providing some financial support for a couple of kids just so they can get groceries and things like that. I mentioned earlier making sure that they have housing where they can be safe and quarantined. And then we made sure all of our students have laptops or like some, whatever technology they might need so that they can continue their education remotely. And yeah, then we're just kind of keeping our eye on how um, financial aid and college acceptance and enrollment is going to be affected and then what this fall is going to look like. And, you know, it's really uncertain. We're just not sure. And each college is kind of handling it a little bit differently. so. Just keep everybody updated and working toward their goals despite the circumstances.
0: Has there been any talk in Illinois about extending foster care services through this COVID-19 time?
1: Yes. You know, I, I don't know what they ended up deciding officially, but I know the Foster Care Alumni of America has a really strong chapter here in Illinois, and they were asking DCFS to provide some extended programs and resources and ensuring that those who were supposed to age out during these couple of months that we've been in quarantine are not just getting kicked out of the system without a <laughs> without a safety net. So yes, they have been talking about it. I'm pretty sure that DCFS had pledged and our governor had pledged to make sure that those who were scheduled to age out did not
0: do so. Okay, good. There are a handful of states that are talking about that right now, but not many have taken action yet. So I think everybody's kind of waiting with bated breath to see what the decisions will be. It's got to be a very scary time for the young people who are just starting their lives. You know, here they finally are looking ahead and hear this weird, strange time that we're in descends and all of a sudden everything comes to a screeching halt.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is scary. And, you know, some of the things that we all have to face, I mean, even apart from COVID like there are barriers that pop up for all of us to college access but for foster youth if you don't have the same kind of support system to work through those barriers they just can become insurmountable and so we're trying really hard to make sure that this isn't one of those things that makes college access insurmountable
0: right right Well, what do you think the system could do better for the work that you do as far as access to higher education? Do you have any ideas as far as, you know, some positive changes that could take place?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like I mentioned, money and housing are really critical. And we in Illinois, they passed in 2019 a law that says that all students who experience foster care at any point in their lives In the state of Illinois can attend our public colleges and universities tuition free. So that is an incredible support to our foster youth. But unfortunately, it means that they're still paying out of pocket for room and board. And because housing is such an issue anyway. You know That's just kind of doubling down on <laughs> the the obstacles. So if systems, whether it be government or DCFS or the colleges, whoever, um, really wanted to make a difference for foster youth, I think they would provide financial aid that could be applied to room and board or waive room and board fees for foster youth. And then I also think continued training for caseworkers and foster parents around this issue is critical. There's just a lot of misinformation out there about college for foster kids. The caseworkers are charged with keeping these children safe, and that's a huge job. But because they're really focused on, as Allison put it, the right now and the safety of the right now, they're not oftentimes thinking about, okay, what happens to these children as they grow? and What is the ultimate goal here? So I just taught a small private agency. I taught a handful of caseworkers, a training, and I thought it was really telling. I mean, these are great caseworkers, really caring. But one of them said, I'm so glad you came because it sounds so silly, but I don't actually usually think about the children that I serve becoming adults. And, you know, as a mother... I think about my children becoming adults all the time. You know, we were just talking with Hannah this morning about what do you want to be when you grow up? You're very creative and you're very social. Like I could see you being a teacher or I could see you, you know, writing stories. So we talk all the time with our kids about what they're going to be when they grow up and what their options are and how to get there. And so I think that's going to be really critical for the system too, to think about They're not just children, they're future adults. And so what are we gonna do to prepare them for that adulthood?
0: Right, exactly. One of the things that I've thought of, if you've heard the term, you treasure what you measure. Mm -hmm. The system measures and tracks, is there a roof over their head? Are they getting the food? Is there clothing? Do they have beds? You know, they go and they inspect those things and they track it. But what if the system tracked and measured life skills, right? Or knowledge about the resources that are available to them or both. And I know social workers are overwhelmed as it is. I get that. I don't want to make their jobs more difficult. That said, though, the outcomes would change dramatically if life skills were included in what was measured by the system.
1: Yeah, definitely. I agree.
0: I tell you what, let me ask you one final question here. If you were talking to someone who was just starting a program with foster youth, what advice would you give from your perspective? Let's say they want to do either something similar to what you are doing or, or even not necessarily, but just something with older foster youth who are getting ready to age out or have recently aged out. Is there any particular advice that you would give them?
1: Oh, well, that's a great question. I think it's so critical to get the right people in the right places. I think that's a concept from good to great, which is like a business book. So getting the right people in the right places is really key. For example, I have a program manager named Jasmine, and I hired her 18 months ago. She's just phenomenal. We love working with each other. She's really passionate about this population and doing her job well. And um, we've grown so much because of her. And then also, you know, every nonprofit has to have a board of directors. And I have an incredible board of directors who are so supportive. So I would say just make sure you're really careful about getting the right people in the right places, whether it's your board of directors, your staff, your volunteers. You know, our mentors are absolutely incredible people. When I first started, I was the only person mentoring the students. And I thought, gosh, like, this is really hard. This is my passion. This is the thing This is my baby. This is the thing I care so much about. How am I going to get more people to commit to this? And as I started recruiting and interviewing people, I realized there are people out there who are incredibly skilled and passionate and kind and successful who will make great mentors and you know, I am limited in my capacity as an individual, but when I can bring other people into the work and onto the team who are, you know, in many cases, like a lot smarter than me or a lot more, I mean, they don't have four children and a dog and a husband at home and they can devote more time to it, you know, then that just amplifies what
0: we're, what we're able to do. So
1: that would be my advice.
0: Right. And I would say along with that are the right partnerships. Do you have any partnerships with other organizations that are really key to the work that you do? Definitely, yeah.
1: There are people in Illinois and at our universities in particular who are doing research on this population, particularly Dr. Jennifer Geiger. So she used to work at Arizona State, and now she works here in Illinois at UIC, uh, University of Illinois at Chicago. And she's been an incredible partner. DCFS itself is a partner that we've been working with, and a bunch of different private agencies that contract with DCFS. The foster care system is a pretty interconnected system. Like, if once you get involved in it, you know, you very quickly learn who the key players are. And the more the merrier I say, like, we all need to be working together because it's a big issue. There's a lot of youth and um, they have a lot of needs.
0: Oh, definitely. And you mentioned Dr. Jennifer Geiger, and I wrote her name down to put in the uh, show notes. Is that to ensure that the strategies that you put into place have a research foundation?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So when When I started Foster Progress, I mean, anytime you start a new program, you really have to look at what's already out there and make sure you're not just duplicating it. And if you are, I mean, sometimes there's a reason to duplicate programming, whether it's like geographic or if you think you can do it better or something like that. But, you know, seeing what's already out there and then, you know, you have to do your due diligence in terms of research with making sure that what the solutions that you're providing are evidence-based and, and makes sense, given what the problem is that you're trying to
0: solve. Definitely. Actually, the podcast that would have been posted right before yours is with Dr. Johanna Greisen out of the University of Pennsylvania. And we talk about just that, the importance of having that research foundation to ensure that you're applying things that are going to help the young people and will definitely avoid hurting them.
1: Right. Of course. Yeah. And I think there's also a place for, you know, being innovative and trying something new. And if you decide to to innovate and do something that hasn't been researched yet, then to track your results and, like you say, measure it to make sure that what you set out to do is what you're actually accomplishing.
0: Right. And there may well be researchers out there that have graduate students who would be more than happy to do a project with you. If, if as, as an organization talking to the listeners, if you have an organization that wants to try something new, work in tandem with a university in the uh, application and then you can you know track the implementation and the results with them. Uh, I think that would be a fantastic idea. Yeah, that is a great idea. All right. Well, I think we probably have reached the end of our time. I want to thank you so much, Kate, for talking with us today. It's been great learning about your program. I'll be very interested in in following you from here on in. (laughs) I'll find you out there. And are you on social uh, media? Yep, we're all over it. All right. And how could people contact you if they wanted to get in touch with your organization, maybe even to talk with you about what you do and to brainstorm some ideas? How might they be able to reach you?
1: Yeah, our website is um, foster-progress.org. And the email address that's probably easiest to reach me at is info at foster-progress.org.
0: Okay, and I have been asking everybody, so I don't want to neglect you either. Um, I'm not sure I didn't ask about how you are funded, but is there an opportunity for donations if people wanted to help you out? Yes, please. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we're we're largely um, privately funded, so um, we have a couple of foundation grants, and um, otherwise, we are largely uh, just individuals who give. And that's on the website as well. We had to cancel our um, fundraiser, our annual event this year, which usually brings in 40% of our budget. So that was a big blow. And luckily, we have some savings that we can we can go off of. And we did get that small business loan from the government um, for our salaries. So I think we'll be fine, but um, we did have to definitely like cut back on some of the things that we would normally provide for our students. So anything helps. And we're doing some virtual stuff throughout the month of May that people can participate in if they are willing.
0: Okay. Terrific. Well, hopefully our listeners will take you up on that and, 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 be able to donate. I know it's a tough time for everybody, so that's certainly understandable, but I, I do want to share in these podcasts how folks can donate to the different organizations, because we're we're all trying to do good things with the foster youth, and I know there are a lot of people out there who might be able to give a little bit, so I wanted to share that. So Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. Sure, well, you're very welcome. Thanks again, Kate, and uh, I do wish you well getting through the COVID-19 time. Hopefully it will be ending soon. I look forward to maybe touching base with you sometime in the future.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is a great opportunity and I've been learning a lot from your other guests, so this is cool.
0: All right, well, for those who have listened to the end, thank you so much. Look for another podcast in the next two weeks uh, at the very latest. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. Any resources or research mentioned in today's podcast will be added to this episode's show notes at agingoutinstitute.org forward slash AOI podcast. If you have any suggestions for people or programs that you think we should highlight in a future podcast, please send an email with your ideas to podcast at agingoutinstitute.org. Finally, if you found this podcast to be informative or useful, we would greatly appreciate it if you would consider becoming a podcast level patron on Patreon. For only $3 a month, you can help enable AOI to continue interviewing nonprofit leaders, social workers, and former foster youth well into the future. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash agingoutinstitute. Thank you so much for considering it, and thank you for listening. Until next time.